out there, all you spoken beyond. This is Sam Maxwell coming at you live from Flatbush on the Bedford Sullivan Podcast. And we are also live in two other Brooklyn locations that we will get to in a moment. But you are here uh, as the audience participating in the active research of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we love to get the feel. We love to get the uh, a sense only the history, but but the the different uh, uh, the, the different conditions of Brooklyn depending on the seasons. And we, though it's still winter, we're getting a little bit ahead. Uh, and been Brooklyn here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast tonight. I hope you are all well out there. I hope you are all health and safe. And without further ado, let me bring on my other Brooklyn compadres. And we're going to start with uh, basically my co-host uh, at this point, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LaColant, coming at you live from Bensonhurst. Hello there, Sam. Hello, Brooklyn. And uh, I will send out a hearty hello to our featured guest this evening. Hi, and how you doing, our featured, guest, <laughs> our featured guest that you just uh, uh, heard is the, uh, has been on the podcast plenty of times, including actually our first guest along with Larry King, and that is the Brooklyn Borough historian, Ron Schweiger. Ron, what is going on? Welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, as always. Thank you so much, Sam. Glad to be here. And hello, Mike. How you doing? Hello, Ron. Likewise, pleasure speaking with you again. Okay. So, like I said, you know, uh, we, we, we're getting into the uh, springtime in Brooklyn in terms of uh, the current status as well as a historic status. So I'm going to start with you, Rob, and I want you okay. to give us some context of springtime in Brooklyn from a, a historical level. Okay. Well, for all the listeners, um, spring arrives um, here on the East Coast on uh, this Sunday, the 20th, um, at 11.33 a.m. West Coast, take it away, take three hours away from that. Um, when I was, uh, I was a science teacher for 39 years, and uh, I would always tell my students the exact time, the, the exact minute that spring arrived. And I, this was in elementary school, and I remember when fall arrived, I said to them um, that spring arrived, I remember one year spring arrived, Right at a couple of minutes after they were being dismissed at the end of the day at three o'clock in the afternoon, and I said, "Remember, on the way home at 3:06 p.m., do not stand under a tree when fall arrives because all the leaves are going to fall down at one time." And the young, the really young kids looked at me and went, "What?" <laughs> so that was their introduction That's- to. Uh, to fall, <laughs> to autumn. Yeah, but spring. And, uh, you know, of course. Uh, no, I was just going to say real quick, Ron, that uh, of course you. Uh, I, I'm sure you have told me before that you're a science teacher, but it explains yes. so much and add, and definitely adds an extra element to uh, the springtime episode. And now I know exactly that I will still be in winter at 11:32. A.M. on March 20th. <laughs> Technically, yes. And, and you know, um, uh, my wife and I, our bedroom faces east. 
And when the sun rises, of course, we are facing the sun. And we, you can pretty much tell what season it is. There are two windows in our bedroom facing east. And in the wintertime, um, we have to make sure that the window on the right-hand side, uh, that the blinds are reversed so that when the sun is rising, it doesn't go right into my wife's eyes as she wakes up, all right? But now, with spring, the sun is now coming through the left window. That's my side of the bed. And uh, because, <laughs> of, because of the way the earth rotates and how the earth is tilted on its axis, um, different seasons, of course, you know that uh, you get more direct uh, sunlight in, in, the, um, in the summer season than you do in the winter. That's why it's hotter. So uh, Sunday at 11.33 a.m., the direct rays of the sun will be directly on the equator, directly on the equator, halfway between 23 degrees north latitude and halfway between 23 degrees south latitude. And, and that's the difference between spring, fall, and, and uh, summer. I, I'm, uh, that's right. Okay, so uh, there's your uh, science lesson for the day. <laughs> so once it's on the equator, it'll also be directly in your eyes, it sounds like. Well, no, because there's a, uh, there's a, um, a wall between the two windows, so the wall blocks that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear that. Mike, you are a man about town. Uh, tell us right off the top of your head, we've done these episodes before, of course. It, it's become an annual tradition. So tell us about Brooklyn in the springtime for you. Actually, I'm going to pick up where Ron left off, and that's looking upwards. You know, uh, in December, it, nighttime was it, it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful sight because Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter were in the nighttime sky together. Yes, uh, I, but, you know, I saw they, that. Yeah, they've transitioned since then, and Venus is back to being a morning star. And I wake up just before sunrise, and the first thing I do is I look out the window, and I look a bit I look a bit uh Venus. I don't have that elevation to catch Mercury just before sunrise, but you know, uh that's always fun too. It pops up every now and then and you get a good view. So I thought I'd pick up where I lo- where where Ron left off and uh you know, this time of year uh I look straight up and Orion passes right over my house. Or at least that's the way I feel and I view it. But the constellation Orion passes right over my house evenings uh, it's so big and bright, and, and you know, uh, the star series is there just shining so brightly. Uh, I get a kick out of it. And, you know, if you go up over uh, by the waterfront over here, uh, off of Bay Parkway, you know, here in the city at least, uh, that's a great place uh, to look at the expanded sky. You know, uh, minimal darkness, of course, but... Uh, you know, you got to be in places like Prospect Park, Marine Park, uh, like I said, the waterfront, you know, to get that expanded view of the sky and, and really take it in. Uh, it is a beautiful thing. And there's much to see despite living in the city. Yeah, you got to wait for the uh, sky to be uh, really clear without any haze. Yeah. And uh, also, of course, like you said, away from the, the lights of the city. Um, like you said, Prospect Park, Marine Park, um, definitely, you know, because uh, very, very few lights are visible there. Uh, I remember um, many, many, many decades ago, in, in 19, I think it was 1974, 
My wife and I uh, went camping in New England and in Canada, the, the eastern provinces of Canada, and we actually went all the way up to Newfoundland, and we were camping, and I remember I came out of the tent, oh, it must have been about 2 o'clock in the morning, and this was in Grossmorn National Park on the west coast of Newfoundland, the first year that they opened up that national park there. And I had never seen a sky like that in my life. Um, it was so clear. In fact, I turned on the car radio, and believe it or not, in Newfoundland, I got WINS radio on my car radio at 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> uh, believe it or not. But the sky, the, the stars were so unbelievable how many that there are. Listen, they're out there right now, but we're in the city, and you can't see it all. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, I'll say, no, no, I, I was just really quickly, because you mentioned Orion, um, you'd be surprised from my health kitchen uh, Paris uh, at the piano factory, a very hidden gem of uh, Manhattan in New York City itself, a former piano factory now turned apartment building with a courtyard in between two factory buildings. Um, you can see Orion. I, I I took a photo of it the other day, and with these, you know, these iPhone night mode, you can get it. You can see the stars uh, pretty clearly with the, these photos. And um, you know, obviously, we're talking about Brooklyn, but since you mentioned Orion, I could see Orion's belt uh, from Manhattan itself. So don't underestimate the power of uh, the stars to even break through the city life. Go ahead, Mike. Uh. No, there are several constellations that break through the city lights. But uh, I was just going to take it out of Brooklyn for one more second. I concur with what Ron said. I spent upwards of uh, maybe 120 days out in the middle of the Mojave Desert when I was back in the service. And I, I, I never saw such a, a magnificent night sky ever, you know, before <laughs> or since. Uh, incredible. And I now know ever since then where purple mountains majesty comes from incredible and, and i i can't i i can't uh say that it must be better or, or worse uh than the mojave desert or newfoundland but upstate new york uh that a lot of brooklynites go to uh, either on the weekends or the summer or even in the winter you can see the star like like there's so many stars in that upstate sky that you can't you can't you must be looking at billions and you know it and you feel so small and finite, but in a great way. Uh, so, so let's, let's travel back down the New York state Thruway, uh, over the river and through the woods, which I'm, <laughs> I'm sure actually does occur and back to Brooklyn, New York. So Mike, I, I'm going to again, start with you here with this, um, uh, you know, we, we, we've gone over the constellations, and, and it, I, it's just like we talked about on the last podcast. I'm going to have to have, like, I'm going to have to have the stars of Brooklyn and get, you know, a constellation uh, expert in, as well as, uh, what do we say, a, a geologist, <laughs> the, the geology of <laughs> yeah. New York City, which Ron's spoken on as well. But, but so <laughs> we had so many different ideas for podcasts, uh, but, but again, Outside of the night sky, what do you think of when you think of springtime in Brooklyn? You know what, Sam? We have new traditions 
we have Brooklyn Nets playoff caliber basketball. That's what Brooklyn has. Professionalism. And, uh, you know, over in Coney Island, we got the Brooklyn Cyclones. And oh. coming April, this coming April is going to be historic. I'm not going to stamp on it. You can pick it up. But this coming April is going to be historic over in Coney Island. And I just thought I'd give this a sports spin because, again, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Nets, NBA franchise here in the borough, playoff caliber. So April, March, April, May, springtime, you know, that team is working very diligently on creating new traditions here in the borough in springtime. Well, I'll add to that, Mike and Sam, because um, baseball in Brooklyn in springtime takes me back to the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, which, by the way, they never moved, you know. They're on an extended road trip. <laughs> um, and Sam, you know it? that <laughs> um, one third of my basement is Brooklyn Dodgers memorabilia, and um, I just have met. Listen, I'm old enough to have gone to Ebbets Field and see them play. Jackie Robinson was my favorite player, and um, uh, I just loved growing up here in Brooklyn, going to Ebbets Field and seeing the Dodgers play. Um, but now we have the Brooklyn Cyclones, which is a New York Mets farm team. And speaking of springtime, uh, previously um, the Cyclones were a, a uh, short season A team, which means that it's one of the lower rungs of the farm teams of baseball. But now um, they are a full season high A team. And this, that means that they're going to start, actually, uh, I believe April, wait a minute, i got the schedule right in front of me here, um, April, uh, uh, April 8th, they're on the road, and they open up in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, I believe, but their opening home game is Tuesday, April 12th. Now, if we go back to the days when there were only eight teams in each league, before any expansion teams existed, um, the baseball season started at the end of the first week or the beginning of the second week of April. So they can fit, uh, fit in a 154-game schedule, the Brooklyn, you know, the Dodgers. But the Cyclones, um, because, of the, uh, uh, um, because of their an A team, their full season, I believe, is 140-some-odd games. Um, but it's starting in April. Previously, as a low A team, they started in mid-June. So now it's spring coming. They're going to start like the Dodgers did in the, the second week of April. And that's springtime in baseball in Brooklyn. And I'll be there opening day. I cannot wait for that winter cap. I am certainly going to make it. Since I can't find my Mets winter cap, uh, I think the Cyclones is going to be uh, in my normal circulation every winter uh, with whatever, you know, sponsorship advertisement, I will be walking around just like the Major League Baseball teams will now, but that's a whole other tangent. Uh, Mike, take it from there. Uh, that's it. You know, uh, Brooklyn is going to have uh, a professional baseball team on the field in April since 
the Dodgers left on that, you know, torturous road trip that they've never come back from yet. No, 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 uh, no, no Mike. They're on an extended road trip. <laughs> extended road trip. It's <laughs> uh, torturous. But, uh, torturous. But I, I can't wait. You know, like we've been saying, this is going to be historic. Uh, you know, in our backyard, Coney Island, what better place? And we speak of spring and we speak of Coney Island. And every spring, uh, I try to run to the waterfront, be it Coney Island, Brighton Beach, over here by me, uh, you know, the promenade, over by Bay Ridge Waterfront, uh, you know, uh, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, uh, the borough, the city is reclaiming the Brooklyn waterfront, been left in disarray after the war. Uh, most of the Brooklyn waterfront was the industrial complex, but over the last 20 years or so, they've done a, a good job of trying to reclaim much of it. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of places to go, and I always urge people this time of year, run to the waterfront, wherever it may be. Brooklyn Park, uh, beautiful place, new, you know, so it, it's awesome. Well, speaking of spring again and parks, um, first thing that comes to mind is um, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And right across the street is Prospect Park. Um, my wife and I spent all during COVID, when COVID first started, they said uh, outdoors is the best place not to catch anything as long as you're not in a large group. So we spent a lot of time walking um, uh, in the Botanic Garden every each of the seasons and Prospect Park. And a lot of people don't realize that Prospect Park is just not the paved road and the, the paved paths. There are hiking trails in the woods of the park, extensive hiking trails that take you up to, up to the highest point, uh, which is called Lookout Hill. It's 183 feet high. You may not think it's that high, but the view from the top is pretty good, even in the winter when there are no leaves on the trees. All right. So we were there during each season seeing the seasonal changes and seeing the different birds you see in the different seasons. And now with spring, you're getting the migrating birds coming back. And I see already at my bird feeder in the backyard, um, I've got the male and female cardinal. I think they flew in from St. Louis. I got blue jays, and they came from Toronto, of course, if you, if you know the baseball language. <laughs> All right. I got sparrows. I had a black-capped chickadee and a, a, a slate gray junco. That's J-U-N-C-O. I have a bird book. So when I saw those, uh, other than the blue jay, the sparrows, and the cardinals, those other birds, I had to look it up and see what they were because I didn't know. So I get a whole, oh, by the way, we get morning doves also. And so we have a whole menagerie of birds right here in the backyard. And this is springtime, and some of them are coming back now. And uh, although actually, believe it or not, Blue Jays and the Cardinals, some of them were still around during the winter. So the Botanic Garden, uh, definitely a place to, to go to see Daffodil Hill and all the, um, the begonias growing, not, uh, and the, uh, the uh, what are those trees called? Mag the magnolia trees. Absolutely stunning to Ron, see them in full bloom. Yes. Ron, I uh, teased at the beginning that we were live from two other places other than Flatbush. Of course, as I mentioned uh, uh, on Mike's side, he's in Bensonhurst. 
but I don't think I mentioned, and you might have just now, but I, I may have missed it. Um, I didn't mention where you are. So where are you coming from live, uh, considering you were talking about the birds around there? Okay. First of all, I'm in my kitchen right now, and my backyard is right <laughs> here. in from his kitchen. <laughs> right. And uh, th- I'm in the Flatlands neighborhood, and I am about, uh, if you're driving, it's about seven minutes south of Brooklyn College and about six minutes north of the Kings Plaza shopping mall and about uh, seven and a half minutes from the Belt Parkway, the exit 11, the Flappish Avenue exit of the Belt Parkway. So that's where I am located right now. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I, w- I was just driving on Dittmas Avenue because of the traffic. The, the traffic brought me all the way over there. And uh, like I was discussing with Mike uh, uh, on – uh-oh. <laughs> Tell them they'll have to wait. Anyway, so I'm not sure whose place that is, so I, I, I'll throw this to either of you, whoever can discuss it. <laughs> um, I was on Dittmas Avenue, and like I was just talking with Mike, between Coney Island Avenue and Ocean Avenue, and I just, you know, like you walk through Prospect Park South, and then you catch a little further south of that, uh, randomly these avenues. I'm sure I've been on Ditmas before, but the houses there are just, it's, they're breathtaking, and, and obviously, you know, I was in traffic, I was dealing with a, a, a TLC driver who for some reason decided that he was better than all of us and got in front of me in the intersection. And I was like, no, you don't once this thing starts going. Uh, but, but that's, that's just New York city driving and the things that piss me off. The houses don't you guys, those houses are magnificent. And uh, um, I believe I have both of you back. So I'm going to go to you first, Mike. Uh, like I, we were saying, you know, uh, uh, those houses are going to present most likely, hopefully, a lot of great springtime visuals. But it's up to the individual to get that done. Mike, did we lose you? No, I just had everyone on mute, so dollar <laughs> in the jar. Uh, the neighborhood you, the neighborhood you allude to is the Flatbush Malls. What a gorgeous section of Brooklyn! Those houses are incredible. Uh, beautiful, gigantic colonials, and the residents do an outstanding job of keeping those houses, you know, uh, just in beautiful condition. And, and that's no small task. And that's, a, uh, that's also a costly endeavor as well. Uh, but those houses are beautiful. That neighborhood is beautiful. You drive or, or walk through it, uh, you will forget you are in Brooklyn. Because just blocks well, away. Be- Before I moved to Flatlands, I lived over there in one of those big houses, but uh, renting in a two-family house until my wife and I bought the one we have here now in Flatlands. Um, In fact, on April 28th, I'm doing a walking tour in that neighborhood, in um, Prospect Park South, Beverly Square West, Ditmas Park. By the way, the realtors call the entire area Ditmas Park, but it's not true. There are 11 different neighborhood associations within a 100-square-block area there. We call it Victorian Flatbush because it was developed at the very end of the Victorian era, around the turn of the century. And uh, 
So the architecture of the homes are Victorian, Queen Anne, Edwardian, Georgian, Tudor. There's even a Japanese cottage that is humongous on Buckingham Road that was built in 1903. And the area is known as, uh, we call it Hollywood East, because a lot of major motion pictures were filmed there, TV shows, commercials, because it's cheaper paying the people who own the homes for the use of the home for the films and commercials than it is to build a set or, or to do it in a studio, because you have the houses right there. Uh, Sophie's Choice was, a bit, uh, was filmed at 101 Rugby Road with um, Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons and, Glenn, uh, and uh, Peter McNichol. Uh, Reversal of Fortune was uh, filmed at 1305 Albemarle Road in Prospect Park South. Um, uh, with Jeremy Irons and Glenn Coast, Close. And in Ditmas Park, about, I don't know, I'm guessing about four or five years ago, Tom Hanks, um, I don't know if you saw the movie um, Bridge of Spies. And at the end of the film, at the end of the movie, my wife and I were watching it, the movie on TV, and it's, it's a true story. And Tom Hanks played a, a lawyer from Brooklyn that dealt with, a changing of spies on a bridge in Berlin, in Germany. Uh, it's a true story. And the, 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 the real attorney, the real lawyer, lived in Brooklyn. So Tom Hanks played that lawyer. And at the end of the movie, he's coming home, and he's walking down East 17th Street in Ditmas Park, and he, the house he goes into, as he's walking up the steps, I yelled out to my wife, that's Lena Cohen's old house. Because that's part of the walking tour that I give <laughs> in Victorian Flatbush. <laughs> so, so this, here's the crazy thing. Like a lot of times that we're on uh, these historical podcasts with you, Ron, and we're going through the history of Brooklyn. I always like to go to Google Maps, and I always like to just explore and make sure that anything that you mention, I can literally go to whatever the current, and especially, uh, oh yeah, and I remember this house. So what, and maybe this is the house you were talking about, but hold on for a second. What, what's, um, what's unbelievable about what you just mentioned, and, and I definitely didn't have any, any, you didn't give this exact cue, but this is the way I love, this is something I love about life, these weird coincidences that may not be. Um, while I'm on Google Maps with the whole street view, with the, the you know, Google car going around, giving you, as good of a view of Brooklyn as you could go see Serbia right now. Um, actually, I don't even know, considering uh, what's going on, whether Serbia has been documented by Google Maps. But anyway, <laughs> a little topical for you. But this brick house, Ron, right at the corner yeah. there of 17th and Ditmas, it's amazing that you were talking about that right as I am uh, looking at this Google Maps street view. Uh, is that at the house you were talking about? And which house were you, if not? The house where Tom Hanks was filmed? Yes. Is that the one you're thinking? No, that's in the middle of the block yes. between between Ditmas Avenue and Dorchester Road. It's in the middle of the block on the west uh, side of the street. A beautiful Victorian house built in 1902. And uh, that's the house that that was used in the movie um, Bridge of Spies where he and his family lived. All right. Um, right. I don't know if the, the the real lawyer in real life didn't live there, but that's the house that was used in the movie. And by the way, some so of the people my, who live right there, a couple of people I know there, um, 
they were out watching the filming, and some of them took pictures with Tom Hanks. He was a nice guy. <laughs> Everything uh, I've ever heard is that he is the nicest guy. He is the quintessential yes. nice guy of Hollywood. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, uh, you know, you have traveled to and fro. You may have literally been at every block in Brooklyn, quite possibly. So 17th and Ditmas Avenue, looking at this brick house, um, it, it kind of stands out, especially with the plot of land and how big it is. I, I'm sure you've seen what I'm talking about, but it does, it is kind of a unicorn within some of these, these other Victorian homes. Um, Sam, I can t- tell you the history of that house. Well, it, let, it was actually, sure, yes. It was well, built on, in 1907. Okay. <laughs> hold on for hold on for a second, and we'll we'll we'll. I'd love to hear that, Mike. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have an idea. You know, I'm having a hard time picturing it in in my mind right now. But I'm sure I've passed it. I know I've passed it a million times. It's uh, on the northwest corner. But, yeah. Uh, Again, uh, my memory is failing me, failing me right now. And plus, I'm retired, okay. so I'm not out there anymore. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm recently of retired. Of course, I'm going to send you. I'm going to get the photo over to you in a second of the uh, the All screenshot right. that I took. But go ahead, go ahead, uh, Rob. But, yeah, that house is certainly a unique house in an area that is uh, Victorian in style. Um, it's all brick. And uh, it was built in 1907. I have a 1909 photograph of the house, and um, I have it on a slide. And it uh, it shows um, the photographer was standing diagonally across the street, took a picture of the house in 1909. Um, Ditmas Avenue was not paved yet. It was still dirt. And uh, there were trees around. And there's a woman walking on Ditmas past the house, and she was wearing a long, that, that was the style that day in 1909, a long Victorian dress with a big hat and an old lamppost on the corner. Okay? So that was in 1909. And the house, inside the house, um, the, I'm not going to mention his name, but um, each room in the house has a different, unique style. For example, if I remember correctly, the dining room was Japanese, uh, another room on the main floor was uh, American Southwest, um, and, and e- each room on the main floor had a different, unique style. And in the basement, I don't know if you've ever—I uh, don't belong to a health club or anything—but you've seen pictures if you haven't been to health clubs. Well, the basement looked like the most, the, the most perfect health club, and it was. This was only for this guy and his family. And the house is gorgeous inside, absolutely stunning. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, it, and this is like, you know, the, the screenshots I'm about to send you, Mike, um, probably were taken sometime either in the spring or summer, maybe fall. But uh, I haven't tried to check out what anybody walking by, uh, uh, what their attire is. Um, but... It just builds on the the neighborhood one way or another. Bill, it, it's just every time you turn around, there's another house that impresses you arguably subjectively more than the last one. 
It, yeah. It's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful area. And I'm still cracking up over something Ron said. You know, the real estate industry, they love renaming our neighborhoods, you know, and making it all of a sudden, you know, this, that, or the other. Uh, but we go by our old traditional names, don't we, Ron? <laughs> yes, we do. Um, I mean, Ditmas Park um, was developed in 1902, and on the other side of the, the subway tracks is Ditmas Park West, and the same right. developer developed that in 1903. And the, where the B and the Q train run, those tracks were actually put down in 1878, and the tracks ran on the street, not depressed 18 feet down like they are now, all right? And it was called the Brooklyn, Flatbush, and Coney Island Railroad. And the president of that railroad um, around 1880-81 was a guy named Henry Cruz Murphy. And hanging in my dining room is a stock certificate from that railroad signed by Mr. Murphy in September of 1881. Five shares of stock at $100 a share. Well, it's worthless now because the railroad doesn't exist. All right. But um, Mr. Murphy also helped raise millions of dollars in the late 1800s to help develop and build the Brooklyn Bridge. And he was mayor of the city of Brooklyn from 1842 to 1843. So that's a little history of Brooklyn right there. And, and, you know, just it should be point out that the city of Brooklyn in 1842 and 1843 was not even the city of Brooklyn that got absorbed in 1898. But uh, we digress specifically when it comes to spring. Uh, let's okay. go deep into the botanical gardens. Uh, Ron, I'll ta- take it away. Give it, uh, because considering that the botanical gardens, every year gets basically reintroduced to Brooklyn and New York itself. Uh, Tell us some history about the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Okay. Well, it started, I believe, around 1910, somewhere in that vicinity. And they have a children's garden, which goes back back almost that far. Um, And you have Cherry Lane. You have cherry trees on either side of this big grassy mall area. And a lot, most of these trees were donated from Japan. Um, and um, that's Cherry Lane. You got to see that probably mid to late April. And you got, you, you got to see that it is. And they have a, a, Jap, a cherry, cherry tree festival. And you have a lot of uh, activities and music and uh, um, the Japanese ladies dressed in, their usual outfits, uh, as if it was in Japan. So that's the Japanese uh, trees, Japanese lane, cherry lane in the Botanic Gardens. And in June, you have the Rose Garden. And the Rose Garden is spectacular. Uh, You wouldn't believe how many varieties of roses you get in June, um, starting just before the end of spring, before summer begins. And all through June and July, um, there is a, 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 a fantastic display of roses in, in, the, in the Rose Garden. And um, there is a part of the, part of the Botanic Garden has, uh, they have vegetables growing, a part of a vegetable garden. Oh, there's one thing I want to point out. There is a path on the western side of the garden 
not too far from the um, Empire Boulevard entrance to the garden. And there is a bronze or a brass strip going across the paved path. And next to that strip is a large boulder. And on the boulder is a plaque that was placed there, um, I'm not sure, I think in the 1930s. But the, it, the plaque states that to the north of the plaque was the city of Brooklyn. And to the south of that plaque was the village of Flatbush. So that goes back in time. All right. So now you get an idea of where hmm. Flatbush ended and where the city of Brooklyn began. So that's just yeah, okay. So he, that's the, so here's where I'm going to go with this. Um, the ghosts of Flatbush, the Brooklyn Dodgers, they've always yes. been attributed as Flatbush. However, even according yeah. to what you just described and what I can assume Empire Boulevard being very much a, a distinction going from uh, Flatbush Avenue uh, further east, um, what is, is, is it just that it sounded better? Is it all about branding than saying the, the ghost of Crown Heights, the, the Duke of Crown Heights, it just didn't work as much? Well, if you follow that bronze strip in the pavement, which is on a, on a diagonal, it's on an angle, um, it cuts through into Crown Heights where Ebbets Field was located. So Ebbets Field was, uh, you might say, technically in Crown Heights. But when it was built, when Ebbets Field was built in 1912, and it opened in 1913, um, um, it was built on land that was known as Pigtown. It was... Uh, wooden shacks, uh, muddy fields, um, and in fact, Charles Ebbets um, didn't want it to be known what his plans were for that property. So he was able to buy the property at a pretty low price. I don't know what the price was, but he didn't have enough money to build a new ballpark. Um, I don't know if people know this, but before Ebbets Field was built, the Brooklyn Baseball Club before it was known as the Dodgers, played at the, uh, uh, in Washington Park. If you go into the Park Slope Gowanus area on 5th Avenue and 3rd Street, there's a park called J.J. Byrne Park, named after the um, borough president of Brooklyn in the 1930s, and he got WPA money to develop a park there. And there's an old stone house in the park. That old stone house was where the Brooklyn Baseball Club had their clubhouse. And the ball field, Washington Park ball field, was right next to that old stone house. So that's where the Brooklyn Dodgers got started as the Brooklyn Baseball Club. And Charles Ebbets started there, sweeping the floors and selling tickets. And eventually, he uh, got to be president of the ball club. But in 1912... He wanted a more modern ballpark because Washington Park was all a wooden ballpark, wooden stands. It only sat maybe 10 or 12,000 people. And uh, so he couldn't afford it. So he contacted con uh, builders and contractors. Edward, uh, Edward and Stephen McKeever offered them 50% stock in the team. And they accepted. And partly with his money and their money, 
they, uh, the Ebbets Field was built for $750,000. And so, by the way, so, uh, so speaking of Victorian Flatbush. 1912 and so, so, like, but like you were saying, however, though, Ron. Yeah, um, but, but, what, but Charles so, Ebbets so, lived but, in Victorian but, Flatbush. Right, yes. No, so that, that land, though, the Ebbets Field land, technically, yes. you said it was technically in Crown Heights. Um, Pretty much, are, yes. Are you saying that if you are you saying that if you follow the the markers, at some point it was in the the uh, it was in the village of Flatbush. Uh, well, the marker separates the village of Flatbush to the south and the city of Brooklyn to the north. But if you follow the angle of that bronze or brass marker in the pavement, and you follow it out of the Botanic Gardens. It goes right to where Ebbets Field was located. If you follow that same angle. Uh, so, so do you, like, if you follow the angle, and obviously, like, we have to do it maybe on the computer, but, but like, if you follow that marker, um, is, like, half the is, – is half of it in the original city of Brooklyn and half of it in the original village of Flatbush before they got absorbed? It's very possible. It's, it's very difficult to give an actual demarcation. But that is the approximate mocking of okay. separating Flatbush from, from Brooklyn. So we recently had a Charles Ebbets biographer, Mr. John G. Zinn, on the podcast. And so I think he did a great job more than anybody else ever in documenting somebody who had not been documented much before. Uh, so if you could continue on uh, what you were saying about where Charles Ebbets lived. Well, he lived in Victor what's now in Victorian Flatbush. He lived in what's now a landmarked community called Fisk Terrace, and he lived at 1666 Glenwood Road. That's between East 17th Street and the, the uh, dead end where the B and the Q train run. So he lived on that block between the fence that separates where the, uh, the, the uh, subway tracks are and East 17th Street, 1666 East uh, Glenwood Road, rather. 1666 Glenwood Road. Um, so, Mike, wherever you want to pick it up. Uh, I never knew that. I'm going to pass by there. <laughs> I'm going to go check that address out. I never knew that. That's fabulous. Thank you, Ron. And by the way, uh, uh, maybe at the same time, I'm not sure when they live there, but if you go to... East 18th Street in Fisk Terrace between uh, Glenwood, Ro Glenwood Road and uh, Avenue H. I think it's 799 East 18th Street. That's where the Hellman family lived. Those of you that put mayonnaise on a sandwich, all right, Hellman, the Hellman family lived at 799 East 18th Street. I never knew that either. I, I, uh, could you say that, that the, you said Hellman's like mayo? Yes, that's right. Hellman's, the Hellman family, Hellman's mayonnaise. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, what do you know about this? Because I love finding out. I mean, like, it's, and that's the, you know, it goes back to the whole one in six can trace their roots back to Brooklyn. But there's just so many of these names, Pfizer, Hellman's, um, yeah, uh, Name a, a Brooklyn person <laughs> like this. Uh, uh, I just everybody comes back to Brooklyn. 
Uh, I'll uh, throw out Larry another Gaiman, one. That, I, I think it's where I was talking about. I'll throw out another one that people aren't really aware. Heinz. Heinz had a factory here in Brooklyn as well, once upon a time. Huh. But, Heinz, uh, I didn't know yeah. that. And well, how, I, how I want to give a shout-out also to Richard Lewis, uh, who was also from Sheepshead Bay like Larry. But go ahead, Ron. Um, uh, I, I can't say exactly where, but, you know, somewhere uh, in the Lafertz, uh Dean Street area, right around there, give or take, one of those blocks. Uh, it's an old brick, red-painted brick building, uh, and you can still see the... Uh, Stone etchings at the top of the, uh, at the top of the, uh, I guess threshold you might say. Um, at a loss for words. But uh, very quickly, if we can get back to Washington Park, you know I've spoken with Kim many times over there. She's a curator over there at the old Stone House. Yeah. And you know the city used to maintain a sign there outside the the old Stone House, recognizing that the Dodgers once played here, and that sign was removed. And I found that terribly upsetting, you know, and like I said, in numerous conversations with her, the city just isn't interested in, you know, and just keeping the Dodgers present in Brooklyn Uh, and the park itself, you know, they're more interested in George Washington and the Revolutionary War and the Battle of Long Island slash Brooklyn, but they really don't care about recognizing the Dodgers and the legacy and the history, their history in Brooklyn. That's Mike, have you, have you been in the Stonehouse? Have you been inside? Uh, I have. It's been, you know, updated since the last time I went inside. Uh, the last time I actually went inside, they had a, uh, uh, they had a viewer where you could see uh, old footage and things of like that. But, no, I haven't been inside for a couple but of years. But inside... Now. Besides the history of the house and the and uh, the history of of the house during the, the Revolutionary War, they also had some information um, on display about the Brooklyn Baseball Club that played there. So, um, so that's Correct. inside the house. I, I have the history of it. I, I believe we're talking about the same thing. Uh, you know, an informational uh, storyboard. Uh, but that's uh, it's a disservice and just clearly not enough, not enough uh, representation in Brooklyn's past and its history. Well, let's remember until recently and relatively recently within the, the confines of history, uh, they trimmed the bush that was hiding uh, the 1962, this used to be the former home of the Brooklyn Dodgers plaque on Ebbets Field Apartments. And what's, you know, look, I'm all for growing uh, a plant a little bit more. But in this particular case, there should have never been a, a bush planted there in the first place. Ron. <laughs> well, well, maybe the bush was very small when they planted it, and it grew. <laughs> exactly. By the there way, somebody... there was... And, that, there and, was that's a... the kind of, and that's the kind of foresight that they... Uh, that's the kind of foresight that they were missing when it came well, to the fact that the fact that nobody at that time thought to themselves, hey, you know, maybe we don't just have to make a simplistic brick building. We can actually incorporate the facade before we tear down history. What were you going to say, Mike? 
No, with the uh, addition of the home plate, at least somebody over there is paying attention, you know, cutting the bush, the home plate. So, you know, it's still worthwhile uh, to take a stroll over there. You know, you got Jackie Robinson play going right across the street, more history to read on the plaque. So, you know, it's worthwhile still. Well, you know, no ball playing, though. No ball playing on the premises. No ball playing allowed. <laughs> that's that's right. I, that, I couldn't get. That's right. I couldn't get over that. It says that in the courtyard. Unbelievable. Um, uh, now the the Dodgers had their um, their headquarters was not at Ebbets Field. Their offices were in uh, Brooklyn Heights in downtown Brooklyn, at at two fifteen Montague Street, right on the corner of Court Street. Um, the office building that they had their offices in, that, that was torn down, and there's a TD bank on that site now. There is a plaque on the front of the bank. Um, the, uh, about two years ago, three years ago, the plaque was removed, and someone just told me that the plaque is back now. The plaque states that Jackie Robinson signed his contract to play with the Dodgers in that building um, in 1945 or 46 uh, to sign. And, of course, he played with the Montreal Royals first, the, the Dodgers farm team, before he played his first game on April 15, 1947, at Ebbets Field. Um, and I think the current, uh, well, it really wasn't a strike. It was a lockout that finally they settled it. I think they settled it because April 15th, is supposed to be Jackie Robinson Day every single year, the beginning of the baseball season. And they wanted to make sure that they had it this year, where every player wears number 42. So that, I think that's why they settled the lockout in time, if you ask me. Um, you know, <laughs> among, among other things, you know, we were actually talking about on our Mets podcast um, that it would be a travesty to not be playing on the 75th anniversary, not even just Ron the fact that That's they wouldn't right. be playing on April 15th. They wouldn't be playing on the 75th anniversary. Uh, Mike, I'm not sure if you're uh, up on your anniversary, uh, what, you know, each anniversary's gift or, you know, I don't even know what the silver anniversary is, but, like, you know, from a traditional standpoint, what anniversary would they have missed had they, you know, not figured this out? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I I, I never had to uh, calculate that high. I stopped at 50. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to think that they had this in mind, you know, with all the business and uh, minutia of collecting, collective bargaining. I'd like to think that they had this in mind. I don't know that they really did, but they struck a deal just in time. Uh, it, it's been my great pleasure and honor Really, I met Sharon, his daughter, when they did the flagpole ceremony over at Barclays Center when they put the Ebbetsville flagpole there. And I met her there, and I got to speak with her real quick and uh, just express to her, you know, my sentiments and uh, my gratitude and everything that her family has accomplished and promotes and pushes. You know, so Mike, that, that was a big honor for me. Uh, Mike, I met Sharon, uh, Jackie and Rachel's daughter, at the Welcome Back to Brooklyn Festival by Grand Army Plaza that they had for quite a few years. And she had written a book, and I bought the book, 
And I asked her, I said, Sharon, do you visit schools? Because she worked for Major League Baseball, and her job was to visit schools across the country, talking about growing up as Jackie Robinson's daughter. And she said she does. So I got her to come to my public school, uh, PS219 in East Flappish, where I worked for 31 years. And um, I, I spent almost the entire day with her. I had permission to drive into Manhattan and pick her up at uh, the offices of Major League Baseball. And um, we had a wonderful uh, session with her in the auditorium with the fourth and fifth graders. And by the way, before she came, about a week or two before, we showed to the uh, fourth and fifth graders the videotape I had of the original Jackie Robinson story from 1950, where he played himself in the movie. There's a lot of these, and by the way, it was an all-black school, and uh, this way they knew exactly who he was and what he did and what he had experienced. So I had a lot of my Brooklyn Dodger memorabilia up on the stage in the auditorium, and afterwards um, I had to drive her back, and I said to her, I said, Sharon, did you, did you know where your parents lived here in, in Brooklyn? And she said, no. I said, well, it's only about 10 or 12 blocks from the school, and there's a plaque on the house. And Jackie and Rachel Robinson lived at 5224 Tilden Avenue, corner of um, 50, East 53rd Street in East Flatbush. And I said to her, I said, you, when you were born, Sharon, you were born in St. Albans, Queens in 1950. And she goes, that's right. I said, yes, but you were conceived in this house. And she looked at me and she looked at the house and she never, and she never realized it. She never realized it, but that's the truth. <laughs> of course, in 1949, yeah. Jackie lived there with Rachel in the house the year he won the MVP award and the batting championship for the National League. And that's what it states um, on the planet. I, I, Mike, I was going to say that you know exactly where I live. And the fact that I have not walked over to this address and, you know, especially like live on Facebook <laughs> is a travesty. I've lived in this neighborhood since 2015. It's quite literally just the on the opposite side of the cemetery from where you are. Holy Cross Cemetery, that is. And, of course, that's where Gil yes, Hodges is. is buried. That is correct. And, and you know, Mike, uh, without going into what we've told so many times on here about your experience with the, <sighs> with the funeral, um, I'm looking at it right now. I believe you said 43rd Street in Troy Ave- and right a block away from Troy Avenue. What, me, that's- where I lived? Yeah. Was it 43rd? Is, is that the question? I was on East 45th yes. and Snyder. Oh, you know, 45th. so that was okay. That's up that in Flatbush. Right, East Flatbush. Right around the corner. Uh, that was there. dead end block. Yeah, and and you know, just another thing is that you are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and an avenue away from where Jackie Robinson formerly lived. Uh, no, no. Uh, again, opposite sides of the cemetery. Uh, Ron, no, was well, it Tilden? You, you said 45th, Flatbush? right? Yeah, East 45th and Snyder Avenue. 
And Jackie yeah. lived and at Jackie, you are, and he lived at Fifty Third and Tilden. Right. And Jackie, so where uh, you were, what I'm looking at right now, if you were at Forty Fifth, Forty Fifth and Snyder, or, or okay, okay, so you were eight blocks over and one avenue, because I believe Troy counts as Forty Fourth Street, meaning you were at Forty Fifth. Let's see if that, if I'm correct here. Um, come on, click on it. Uh, yeah. So that that's the way it goes. Yes. So you you were uh, eight blocks over and and one avenue from where Jackie Robinson used to live. Uh, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, that's about uh, right. I'm a lucky man. <laughs> I'm a lucky man. <laughs> yeah, no, but, and I think it just it speaks to, and, and um, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if I've, other than Ron, met somebody so ingrained in this borough the way you are from, from not only what you've been able to over the course of your life, Mike, just take in because of your experiences, uh, specifically with Brooklyn and and. You know, of course, your job, which you are now retired from, took you all over. Um, not only it, – it, it obviously, it's, it's, you know, it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, your entire life has been informed by, by what you've collected, but it just so happened that the perfect person to uh, uh, just inadvertently – come across all this Brooklyn history uh, that, that, you know, you, it, it's, it's what comes first, the chicken or the egg. What came first? Mike LaCole went to Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I was born at the time where my family lived up in Washington Heights at the time. And we moved here and settled in Brooklyn uh, again, right around the time that uh, Gil Hodges passed away. Uh, so seventy one, seventy two, I was already in Brooklyn. You know, we were supposed to be talking about spring, and there's one location. <laughs> there, there's a location that I inadvertently left out that I should have mentioned. You know, we mentioned the Botanic Garden, Prospect Park, and so on, um, and the beautiful Victorian Flatbush, where everything is going to be growing and blooming there. Um, on, on the southern end of Brooklyn you have Marine Park and on the south side of Avenue U is the, the Salt Marsh Nature Center. And the, the Nature Center itself is closed now for renovations, but there is a walking trail that you can go on there and you wouldn't believe you're in Brooklyn. It's, um, it's really peaceful. My wife and I were there a couple of days ago uh, and, and believe it or not, there was a raccoon blocking our path. Uh, and he didn't seem to mind, and we walked, uh, which is unusual because you shouldn't really see them in the daytime. And I took a nice picture of him, and he just let us walk by. And uh, and we were there in the winter, we were there in the in, uh, in, in the fall, um, and you just walk right in. You can park, free parking in the Marine Park parking lot on Avenue U, uh, near East Thirty uh, Third Street. There's a, a p- big parking lot there. Cross the, go across the street to where the nature center is and go around the building that's closed, and there is the entrance into the, 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 hiking, the walking trail. And uh, 
Now that it's spring, you're going to see more birds there. I remember last September, I think it was, we saw an egret in the water in the Gerritsen Bay there over there. Um, and at low tide, by the way, you can see wooden pilings sticking out in the bay. And that where, was where the Gerritsen's Mill used to be. Gerritsen Avenue, Gerritsen Beach. Gerritsen um, had a, a, a grist mill there during the Revolutionary War. And, uh, and uh, it, I think it burnt down in the 1930s, I believe it was. But the, uh, pi the wooden pilings are still there. Uh, the Salt Marsh Nature Center, that's a, a free place to go for a wonderful hike. It, uh, the hike will take you all around the, where the water, there are birds there, and, and take, take a look at that. It's really nice. Uh, by the way, the next time you all see a Blue Jay, uh, that will be Norman Max Maxwell just chiming in. So uh, whether you're on this uh, Marine Park Salt Marsh Nature Trail or you are in the uh, – is your bird feeder in the backyard, Ron? Yes, it's in the backyard. It's about, um, I'd say, maybe 15 to 18 feet from my uh, back, my kitchen window, and in fact, I well, just put more make, seed in there this afternoon. Well, to make it personal, uh, the next time that you see a blue jay, that will be my father. Just uh, make a note to, your, <laughs> to uh, make a mental note. That is my father, okay. Norman Max Maxwell. Uh, okay. To get personal about it, but this is I I look forward to going there, Mike. There's a lot about uh, uh, Brooklyn and New York City itself that as much as they completely got, you know, made a man's natural habitat, quote-unquote, um, there's still a lot of, of Mother Nature to be found. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, Floyd Bennett, go there, hiking, waterfront, you know, a uh, lot of open space over there, recreation. Part of oh, Floyd Bennett Field. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, Floyd Bennett. We went there yeah, in the winter, the and uh, if you if you drive on the um, the runway, um, the first right turn you ha come to after you uh, enter, um, you you enter from Flatbush Avenue, and the first left turn you come to, you're on a runway. Drive down that runway. And when you get to the first right turn, drive, make that right and go all the way to the end. That's another runway you're on. When you get all the way, all the way to the end, park your car over there and walk along the water and look to your right. On your right, you'll see a ramp. Go over to the ramp. That is where seaplanes used to come in because during World War II, the Navy was in charge of Floyd Bennett Field. And that's where they had seaplanes coming in. And Floyd Bennett Field was the most active naval airfield in the United States during World War II. And Floyd Bennett is buried in Arlington Cemetery. And it's he was a Brooklynite. Place. He was a Brooklynite. Indeed. Indeed. In fact, public, uh, school, public School 203 on Avenue M and East 51st Street, I believe, is called the Floyd Bennett School. You are listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We are talking springtime in Brooklyn, and these are all the locations 
if you were in Brooklyn or you were planning to visit Brooklyn that you should go to. Sometimes for a tourist, Floyd Bennett Field may be rather far, but guess what? It's also near JFK. So if you are flying in and out of JFK, it might be a good idea to work Floyd Bennett Field around that schedule, (laughs) whether it's immediately. Obviously, when you land, usually you just want to go to where you're supposed to be staying. But why don't you plan your entire trip around knowing that you're going to have a day out in Floyd Bennett Field before you take all your stuff to JFK and fly wherever you have to get out to? Um, Ron, where do you want to go from here? Uh, I'm not sure. We've covered a lot. Um, well, you mentioned we have, spring. We have covered a lot. Well, spring reminds me it's time to uh, take the uh, the furniture out of the garage, the uh, picnic furniture, put it in the backyard, clean up the barbecue, and get ready, uh, uh, and clean out the clean out the garage. Maybe have a yard sale. <laughs> Mike, when was the last time you had a yard sale? Uh, I can't tell you the first time I ever had a yard sale. <laughs> and it's funny I say <laughs> it's funny I say that because uh I'm I'm in the midst of uh you know, doing my own little purge over here and getting rid of nonsense and going through my closets and drawers and things that haven't worn in ages and you know, things that don't fit. We all need a spring cleaning. Yeah, exactly. We all need one. And I'm certainly in my Brooklyn apartment <sighs> as I look around. Luckily, this is only an audible podcast right now because I am in need of a spring cleaning overdue by five years. So uh, that will be fun. Uh, you have been listening to the Bedford Sullivan podcast, and we're so thankful you do. Uh, we are here with the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LaColant. Mike, tell everybody where they can find you. BrooklynTrolleyBlogger.blogspot.com. Uh, check it out. It's all about me and being a sports fan and living in Brooklyn and enjoying the hell out of myself. <laughs> That's perfect. Ron. We are yes, here sir. with the Brooklyn Trolley, the, the, the Brooklyn, I'm going to call you the Brooklyn Trolley Historian, <laughs> but you're not just a historian on, on uh, trolleys from Brooklyn. Uh, you are also a historian of literally everything having to do with Brooklyn itself. And, and Ron, we're always so thankful that you can make us, uh, uh, excuse me, that you can, can join us. Um, so tell everybody where they can find you. Well, I, I don't have a website, but if you want to contact me, my email address, I'll give you right now. Um, don't write it until I spell it. I'm going to say it first, but don't write it because then you're going to cross it <laughs> off. All right? My email address is brooklynremembered at aol.com, but Brooklyn is abbreviated. It's B-K-L-Y-N. So it's B-K-L-Y-N remembered with an E-D at the end at AOL.com. 
Ron, we we got to get you a website. We got to get you on all these social medias. Like you you would be a like with the the, the people that we interact with on Twitter. Like you know you you'd be fine even if you only have at first a few hundreds. Like like you we got to I'm gonna set you up with all this stuff. Uh, maybe I'll tell you something though. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I don't go on, and the reason is. Um, I get so many requests to be a friend of people on Facebook. I have no idea who these people are. I don't know who they are. <laughs> and most people, they, you know why? Because I think they want to say to their friends that they have 10,473 friends on Facebook. I mean, who cares about that <laughs> except them? All right? So I don't need all of these people <laughs> to friend me because I don't know who these people are. Um, most people who want to get in touch with me, they have my phone number, they know my email address, um, or they can <laughs> ring my doorbell. <laughs> All right? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Ron, we're, we're, from a Facebook perspective, which ironically is now uh, considered the old person's website, um, <laughs> the old person's well, if you go media. Well, I didn't even know, Sam, I didn't even know that I was on the Internet um, until one of my students, uh, after I finished teaching at PS219 after 31 years, I taught at the Yeshiva of Flatbush for eight years from uh, 2001 to 2009 and as a science teacher. And one of the students came over to me one day and said, hey, Mr. Schweiger, I, I Googled you and you're all over the Internet. I said, what are you talking about? I had no idea. Any time that someone interviews me uh, or, um, or I'm on TV or on a newscast or something or um, uh, I was on a, mo a, a documentary, a Brooklyn Dodger documentary, HBO, by the way, uh, produced a two-hour documentary in 2007 called The Brooklyn Dodgers, The Ghosts of Flatbush. And they came to my home and they interviewed me and I was in that documentary. That was great. All right? So anything... That is, you know, for the public that I'm interviewed on, somehow they put it on there. I don't, and that's how I found out that I was there. So if you, people who are listening, if they want to see uh, what I look like <laughs> and uh, know more about what I've done in the past, Google Ron Schweiger, Brooklyn historian, click it, and there I am. And I had nothing to do with putting, on, putting it on there except being interviewed. And that was that. <laughs> Ron, Ron, your mustache rivals Keith Hernandez's. They'll all know exactly what you look like soon. Don't worry about being friends with anybody. We are going to set you up with a Facebook page. We're going to set you up with a Facebook page or whatever it is that you don't have to interact with anybody. People just know that you're a person. Um, uh, that that is so connected with with this. But I'll tell you, forget about Facebook, Twitter. You even Howie Rose got on Twitter last year, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, maybe even a couple of years ago. Like all you need to do is just post some random stuff about Brooklyn, and I'm telling you, man, we will eat it up. Okay, uh, it's a possibility because <laughs> I'm. Because I'm well, busy with a lot I'll of... Be your, listen, I'll be your curator. Listen, I was interviewed yesterday afternoon 
by a reporter, you ready for this? For the Los Angeles Times, who happens to live in Brooklyn in Crown Heights. And uh, she lived out in L.A. for quite a few years, but she relocated back to Brooklyn. She writes for the Los Angeles Times, and she was doing a story about the Russian and Ukrainian population in Brighton Beach and the history of Brighton Beach. So I took her on a uh, almost a two-hour walking tour of Brighton Beach, um, showing her vintage pictures that I have from my personal collection, going back to the days when you had the Brighton Beach Hotel on the boardwalk, a 1915 photograph, um, the sheep said the Brighton Beach racetrack, the trolley cars, uh, the whole history, and uh, and um, you know, so she's going to be writing a story about the. Um, when the Russian population got there, how it saved Brighton Beach after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Huh. Um, so, uh, so I'm busy with a lot of stuff. Wow. No, that that's that's fascinating. Uh, what was her name again? Um, I forgot her last name. Her first name is Nina. I, I forgot her last name. Nina. Her last uh, name begins I'll, with I'll the letter the A. I'll take a look. Uh, uh, that's that's amazing, and I look forward to to reading that article whenever it, it yeah. does come out. Um, thank you. Yeah, for I don't the, know. What, the, uh, yeah, I don't know when it's going to be uh, written, but uh, she's in the process of writing it. Thank you for the tease, uh, and thank you for uh, informing us about it. Um, I'm, I'm almost speechless, which is rare for me. Mike, what is your <laughs> final word, sir? Well, my final word, final word is, is – yeah, go ahead, Mike. Final word is be well, everyone. We're still trying to get out of this pandemic. Seems like uh, there's tunnels, so just be well, continue to be safe, and let's uh, make this the best summer that we've had in quite some time. I agree with that. Also, get outside, go to the Botanic Garden, go to Prospect Park, go to the Salt Marsh Nature Center Marine Park, um, and uh, plant flowers. I planted bulbs last fall. Hopefully, to, to uh, the, uh, um, a lamp will grow from the bulbs. Um, but I planted daffodils, tulips, hyacinths, and irises. And hopefully, uh, they are coming up. They're sprouting right now. And uh, we'll see what happens. So enjoy the spring. And uh, let's go Mets. Let's go Cyclones. And let's go Nets. <laughs> let's go Brooklyn. Is how I will oh, end the show. Thank you all so much. Yes, Ron. Sam, yeah, one last thing. I just just recalled. We're talking about Duke Snyder was known as the Duke of Flatbush, the Brooklyn Dodger center fielder. Now, why Flatbush? Because he lived for a short time on Beverly Road and East 18th Street in an apartment in Flatbush, and that's when he was playing with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Then he moved to Bay Ridge, where a lot of the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to. Pee Wee Reese lived there. Dolph Camilli lived there. And in Ditmas Park on East... Yeah, Carl Erskine was there. By the way, Erskine Street on the Belt Parkway, the exit, <laughs> that's, that's named for Carl Erskine. All right? Yes, it is. And, our yeah, and our I told one it, and only. Yeah, and I told it to him personally because he asked about it. Um, in 2005 the Brooklyn Cyclones had a Brooklyn Dodger Day to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Dodgers winning the World Series in 1955. So they invited some of the remaining Brooklyn Dodgers. 
So Carl Erskine came, Ed Roebuck, relief pitcher, Clem Labine pitcher, and um, um, what's his name? Um, George Schuber, George Shotgun Schuber. Hmm. So they were there, and I was there, and Marty Markowitz was being interviewed in one room downstairs where the museum was, and I was being interviewed somewhere else downstairs. And um, Marty yells out to me and says, hey, Ron, come over here. Carl wants to ask you something. <laughs> so, so after my interview, um, I went over there, and Carl Erskine said that he, some of his friends said that there's a, a, an exit on, on the Belt Parkway called Erskine Street. I, and they said it's named after me. Is that true? I said, yes, it is. But the story goes back to the 1970s. Erskine Street is a very short street in East New York, very short. And the, um, the Department of Transportation workers that were mapping out the street asked for permission if they can name it after their favorite Brooklyn Dodger pitcher. And they gave them permission, mm -hmm. they, and they said, well, call Ers Erskine Street. But when the shopping mall, the Gateway Shopping Mall was built about, what, 22 years ago, they needed a new exit on the Belt Parkway. They had to create a new exit to go to the shopping mall. So all they did was extend the original 1970s Erskine Street right over to the Belt Parkway. And there you have Erskine <laughs> Street, named after Carl Erskine. Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't get any better than that. Ron Schweiger knows every single detail about Brooklyn. And Mike, I want almost you to everything. Leave us. Not everything. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to leave us, Mike, with some Cyclones Brooklyn Spring. Uh, you know, we like like we can't. We don't have a fight song, but I want you to leave us out. I want you to take us out, Mike. Hey, let's go Cyclones. Brooklyn's professionalism, a professional team, a professional baseball team and a historic spring to come. So be there, enjoy it. Uh, in April, there's a nice strong breeze coming in off the beach, so bring your windbreaker. That's uh, right. And uh, and just enjoy it, you know. And uh, these are all, these are the jewels of Brooklyn, uh, hidden jewels and, you know, more famous ones, Coney Island, Floyd Bennett, a lot of the places that we talked about. Come to Brooklyn, come. Come to Papa. We'll take care of you. And, Sam, everybody that's listening right now, whether they are Met fans or not or baseball fans, um, the Met main colors are blue and orange. That's the main colors. And a lot of people don't know why the Mets were given those colors when they were created in 1962. Well, the Brooklyn Dodgers that left and the New York Giants that left to go to the, the left coast, the Dodger colors were blue and white, and the Giants were orange and black. So in 1962, when the Mets were created as the new National League team, they gave them one color from the departing Dodgers, the blue, and one color from the departing Giants, the orange. And those are the Mets colors. And a lot of people don't know that. Well, I'm... I'm glad they do now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. You are what continues this excellent interactive research when it comes to making this television show or this comic book or this radio drama or all of the above. 
that I hope to get done when it comes to Bedford and Sullivan. Thank you all. Let's go Brooklyn. Enjoy springtime. Remember, 11.33 a.m. on March 20th. Take care.